Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Today, I have a fantastic interview with Dr. Ron Hunninghaker from the Reardon Institute in America, in Wichita, Kansas, and he is an expert on intravenous vitamin C. In fact, he's overseen over 200,000 infusions of this and done an awful lot of research around this amazing uh, vitamin C and what it does, and we're going to be talking about cancer, we're going to be talking about sepsis, we're going to be talking about everything that this does and the mechanisms of actions that that, that are already known. And Dr. Ron uh, is also a functional uh, nutrition doctor. He has a, a huge amount of experience. He's the chief med- medical officer at the Reardon Institute. Now, the reason I have, uh, wanted to do this interview, and I'm so excited about it, is because, you know, recently I lost my father, as many of you will know. Um, he died uh, in hospital in July after having an abdominal aortic aneurysm. I mean, I'm going to be sharing his whole story um, at a later date. But one of the reasons why, or one of the things that happened was that I was unable to get my father intravenous vitamin C, which is what he needed to fight the sepsis that developed after the uh, operation that he had. And I came up against a brick wall, a legal brick wall, uh, ethics committee brick wall. Um, it was an absolute tragedy what happened up there and so now one of my crusades in life is to make sure that we change the status quo we get access in our ICU uh, centres for things like intravenous vitamin C that people are made aware of this and so without going into the whole details of dad's story because that's beyond the scope of today's interview I wanted you to understand the power of this uh, intervention and how you can use it and also just to make you aware of the problems that we're facing within our medical system as it currently stands. So Dr. Ron is a very, very amazing doctor, so it was a real privilege, one of the world's leading experts on vitamin C, so it was a real privilege to have him on the show. So I hope you do enjoy it and you take this all on board. Now before we hop over and talk to Dr. Ron, just want to give you a reminder, um, we are now running every couple of weeks an epigenetics webinar that we would love you to register for and find out all about this incredible program that we are running that looks at your genes and how they are expressing right now and what interventions and how you can optimize your performance using your own genetics. So you can register for that free webinar at epigenetics.lisatarmity.com. I'll put that in the show notes. That's epigenetics.lisatarmity.com. We're also going to be running a public running masterclass every couple of weeks as well. Uh, If you want to learn how to run faster, run longer, be stronger without burnout and injuries, then you can also do that at runninghopcoaching.com forward slash webinar. That's forward slash webinar. Um, And come and join us for uh, an hour session on running and find out all the information there. Uh, Before I go over to, I also want to remind you about my book, Relentless. If you can pick that up, if you haven't read it already, please do so. It is a game-changing book. It will help empower you and take control of your own health while entertaining you with a pretty inspiring story. So check that out, Relentless, How a Mother and Daughter Defined the 
odds. You can find it in bookstores throughout New Zealand or online at my website at lisatarbity.com. It's available on audiobooks. It's available in all sort of formats from Kindle to Amazon right across the board. But check that out at lisatarbity.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. That helps us get more exposure and share this content with your friends and your family. It's important, amazing content from incredible people, and I really appreciate your support. Now, over to the show. Well, welcome everybody to Pushing the Limits. It's Lisa Tamati here, your host, and today I am super excited. I can hardly control myself, but I'm sitting here with Dr. Ron Hanninghaki from the Reardon Institute. He is sitting in Wichita, Kansas, in America. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ron. Lisa, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, look, I, I'm, I was so excited when Erin, one of your ladies at the Reardon Institute, wrote back to my email because I wasn't actually expecting to get an email back. So I was super excited um, when she did and said, Dr. Ron, would love to come on your show. And I was like, yay, that's so exciting. So to everyone sitting out there, Dr. Ron, can um, can you give them a little bit of a background? Now, you're the Chief Medical Officer at the Reardon Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about the Reardon Institute and your work and, and your history? We well, I'll, uh, I'm a family physician. I grew up in a small town. Uh, I went to medical school wanting to learn more about health. And they really don't talk too much about health in medical schools. It's more about disease management and pharmacology. And so I went ahead and went into family medicine uh, because I saw that as being my best opportunity to actually deal more directly with patients and to start to listen to patient stories and understand what were the root causes of their illness and what could I do to help them begin to regain better control of their lives through better choices that they could make. And it seemed to fit family medicine, and I was good with that. We, I did a lot of wellness work. That's when I was uh, running my marathons and mm-hmm. getting into Whole Foods, and uh, a lot of good things were happening there. Uh, the, uh, the value of uh, uh, relationships, healthy relationships, that goes into uh, health and wellness. And uh, all that was happening, and I was being more and more frustrated by being a family physician for yep. the first 10 years. And then I was fortunate enough to run into Dr. Hugh Reardon, mm-hmm. who was a psychiatrist, one of the early uh, orthomolecular psychiatrists, along with Abram Hoffer, Carl Pfeiffer, uh, Dick Cunyon. These were psychiatrists who realized that the pharmaceutical model of taking care of psychiatric patients, while it might be uh, somewhat applicable in very severe psychosis, uh, generally speaking, uh, it, it, it really is a huge failure when it comes to dealing with uh, depression, anxiety, mild to moderate psychosis. It basically turns uh, what should be a, uh, a short-term uh, psychotic episode into a lifetime of uh, basically pharmacologic bondage is really what I would like to call it. So I got, I got, I got behind that. But then I found out that Dr. Reardon was really interested in general health, general well-being, and he took a special interest in cancer. And, and since he was a good friend of Linus Pauling, wow. when Linus Pauling finished his work in uh, the Vale of Leaven at, in Scotland, uh, Reardon uh, was very enthused about it, but was disappointed when Mayo Clinic uh, did not properly replicate Pauling's studies and yep. uh, both basically wrote him off. Mm-hmm. And Pauling spent the rest of his life trying to 
justify what he had, he and uh, Cameron had discovered, and then he died. He unfortunately, you know, it's uh, I think he he made it to his nineties, I believe, or eighty nine or ninety. But when he died, Dr. Reardon decided to kind of pick up the flag and carry on the work, and so uh, he was able to procure a $1 million grant. And with that money, he, uh, he launched RECNAC, which is cancer spelled backwards. The idea was to look for non-toxic ways of dealing with cancer. And so he was able to do some basic groundbreaking research that showed that, uh, that in, in, in vitro treatment with adequate amounts of vitamin C would effectively stop the growth of cancer cells. And he was able to determine the mechanism of that. And then he uh, was able to create the Reardon Protocol, which is now used all around the world, New Zealand, Australia. There, I, I know 10,000, excuse me, I know 1,000 doctors in Japan uh, that are using it. China is very big in the research. Uh, Dr. Tom Levy and I have lectured in South America. He, uh, he's lectured in Taiwan and China. Uh, we've wow. lectured all throughout Europe. Yep. And so the IV vitamin C notion is there, and there are many people that are using it besides just uh, for cancer, mm -hmm. but it still uh, faces the, uh, the misunderstandings that people have about vitamin C. You know, they think yeah. of vitamin C as a little glass of orange juice, and yeah. what's that going to do for, you know, uh, cancer? Uh, and so they really don't understand that Dr. Reardon found that it was the dose and the pharmacokinetics of vitamin C and the fact that at higher levels, much like when we talk about quantum mechanics, yep. there are different actions at different quanta of, of, of vitamin C. There's a kind of quantum mechanics of ascorbic acid that really, if doctors would open their mind, they would understand that there's a lot more to this uh, when you get down into how the cell functions, how the mitochondria works. Vitamin C plays a very integral role in maintaining uh, normal functioning. Matter of fact, Erwin Stone, who uh, was one of the early promoters of vitamin C, uh, says that life on the planet could not have made it if, 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 if organisms hadn't learned how to deal with uh, and utilize vitamin C to its advantage. So, so Dr. Ron, there were so many things that I want to just pull out there Qu quickly for people. Linus Pauling was a, a, a double, a double, Nobel Prize winning scientist. He basically discovered the, the mechanisms of the, that uh, vitamin C and intravenous uh, vitamin C, I believe. And, but he was, he was, even though he was a double Nobel Prize winning scientist who'd done all these incredible things, was still ridiculed because of this discovery. Uh, and so Dr. Hugh Reardon, who started the Reardon Institute, was then picked up. I didn't, I didn't understand that fact. So that was really, really interesting. And then you've gone on to say the, the vitamin C, when it is given intravenously at high doses, is a completely different beast than the little vitamin C tablet or the orange that you have when you, when you have your breakfast. <laughs> I had a, a friend go in um, for a surgery recently and she said, should I have, says to the surgeon, should I, should I have intravenous vitamin C before I go for surgery? And he said, no, just have an orange. You know, and this is uh, unfortunately the the misunderstanding of the actions, and that's what I want to get into now. The mechanism of action of vitamin C when it is given intravenously versus when it is given orally, um, and what the limitations are in oral vitamin C, and and uh, the, the, when we when we talk about cancer, 
uh, and the Reardon Protocol. Can you explain a little bit about what that is um, so that people listening can go and get some more information on this? Sure. Keep in mind, Lisa, I really don't want to rule out the importance of oral vitamin C. It still has a very important role to play, but when you're dealing with the extremes of illness, uh, this is where the pharmacologic doses of vitamin C come into play, and you are able to achieve things with those high doses that uh, are difficult to achieve, but can be achieved using oral dosing uh, on a more frequent basis. And uh, so we, we can come back to that. But, but no, Dr. Reardon found out that in cell culture, uh, let, let's put things into perspective. The, uh, the average blood level of vitamin C for you and I, assuming that you haven't taken a whole bunch of C just recently, is about one milligram per deciliter or 0.1 millimole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so when we, when Dr. Reardon began to study, uh, he studied 60 different types of, of uh, cancer cells in cell culture. And he found that it wasn't until he got up to around 350 to 400 milligrams per deciliter, which would be about 20 millimoles. So we're going from 0.1 to 20 millimoles uh, body concentration. That's where he found that there was this, uh, this effect that occurred where vitamin C interacted with iron and it took the oxidized iron to the reduced state. Yes. And the reduced iron interacted with oxygen in a way to create the hydroxyl radical, which interacted with water to create hydrogen peroxide. And so hydrogen peroxide, it turns out, uh, will kill cancer cells. And the nuances of that mechanism is are now being discussed at many important uh, institutes. Cornell, for instance, mm-hmm. is in New York City, is doing a lot of research with uh, IV vitamin C as an adjunct to cancer care. Mm-hmm. University of Iowa in 2019 published two really big studies regarding uh, can- uh, colon cancer and pancreatic cancer using IV vitamin C as an adjunct to conventional therapy. And keep in mind that I'm not opposed to this at all. I mean, uh, there are people that would rather have the pure treatment of IV vitamin C mm-hmm. in a synergistic way with lifestyle and dietary interventions and all the various things that you hear about in alternative medicine. But I think if we can even get vitamin C recognized as a very powerful way to reduce side effects, increased quality of life, and to have better uh, survival, uh, which is basically what these studies from uh, Iowa and New York are showing, is that this is an excellent adjunctive therapy. And when we position it as an adjunctive therapy, then we don't have to get into these major battles about a black or white, either or. It's a both and conversation, which draws people into the discussion. And then once they get Looking at vitamin C, vitamin C is probably, as one, uh, one friend of Dr. Reardon said, it's the most interesting molecule in the world. And, and it does things that uh, no other molecule can do, which if you want to get into that discussion without getting too deep into it, there's a lot of fascinating things about vitamin C that makes it a very safe and effective way to promote homeostasis within the body. 
Fantastic. So to get to, to um, 20, uh, 20 micromoles, what sort of a dosage and, the, and how often? So someone, so with the Redden protocol now, you're getting up to some pretty high doses. Like we're at 0.1 millimole, you said, uh, as average human beings walking around. Now, one, one thing that I wanted to know here is that when you are sick, whether that be with cancer and infectious disease, sepsis, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, ARDS, pneumonia, whatever, shingles, hepatitis, your need for vitamin C goes up a hundredfold. Um, and this is a, also a misunderstood by, by medical uh, practitioners, I believe, that they don't understand that a lot of people are getting scurvy, basically, because they actually have a disease where you, the neutrophils are just needing so many, so much uh, vitamin C in order to do their job and to the, that so that the ROSs, the reactive oxygen species, don't absolutely destroy the neutrophils and cause all sorts of problems. I probably butchered that, but you know where I'm going with this. How much vitamin C do we need to have and how often and how regularly? Because I think this is a misunderstood that it's a one and done type right. scenario. It's not. So uh, the human being cannot make their own vitamin C. We have, we have uh, somehow mutated the gene, the L-glonolactone oxidase gene that takes glucose and converts it to uh, ascorbic acid. Mm-hmm. And every other creature, with the exceptions of guinea pigs, uh, a few fruit-eating bats, and certain primates, every other creature makes much, much more vitamin C uh, when they're sick. The champion is the goat, and that was Linus Pauling's favorite example, that a goat can make several thousand milligrams a day. Now, keep in mind that they're making it you know, minute by minute, hour by hour. Uh, and then if they get sick, it takes some time for them to gear up yep. to make uh, maybe 12,000 milligrams, 16,000. Wow. And if you compare uh, uh, body weight, humans to goats, uh, it's been said that that's anywhere from 25 to 50,000 milligrams per day, that they, they are the champions of uh, adaptive response using the ability of their cells to make additional vitamin C. So obviously we can't do that. And so when we get sick, uh, we very quickly go into scurvy. Mm. And, uh, and if we don't totally go into scurvy, now actually there's research, Dr. John Hoffer, Abram Hoffer's son, has done some very nice research of in-hospital patients. And if doctors would just start measuring the vitamin C level of just common everyday illnesses, they'd find that their patients are dropping dramatically uh, in, their, in their reserves of vitamin C. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that we have the ability to survive that we do. But in these days where uh, the average human being is much more sick than ever they've ever probably been because of environmental toxins, nutrient deficiencies, uh, electromagnetic fields, you know, there's just so many different reasons why we are being challenged these days that uh, an illness like COVID will kill the person just just very quickly. You know, yep. we're seeing people, now granted, a lot of these people uh, are fairly sickly to begin with, but they get the COVID virus and they're essentially goners. Uh, yep. Unless they happen to have pretty deep uh, reserves of, uh, of uh, adrenal function and stress adaptability, they, they, they do not survive very long. And so this is why we're seeing these incredible death tolls is because, once again, 
vitamin C has not been recognized, even though the uh, the International Orthomolecular uh, Association has put out several studies and protocols that would work yep. and would, would really solve the crisis very quickly if they would start using vitamin C. But it's no, 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 I don't, no, don't, no. Don't, don't tell me. I don't want to hear something that I don't believe, uh, even though science is not about belief. Science is about trying things and trying to see how things work and what we can do, especially in the field of medicine. If it can save a life, uh, do it, do it. And, you know, that's, uh, that's what I, that's the attitude I wish more doctors had. I know. And I, I mean, um, and we'll, we'll get into, um, you know, my story in a minute, but this is the, the absolute craziness of it. This, the clinical studies are there. The absolute proof is there. And we're like shouting into the wind and nobody is listening. And you have to ask yourself, what is going on? And, you know, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but there is powers behind this and a bias. And you said in one of your talks, um, if it's a if it's a completely new direction, then it doesn't fit in the normal paradigm that we've already accepted. You know, if it's a change within the paradigm and we've just had a progression, then it's more accepted by the medical community. But if it's coming from a completely different direction, like the oxidative medicines are, and I'm talking about here hyperbaric oxygen therapy, ozone therapy, UV irradiation, and vitamin C. Vitamin C is an oxidative therapy. There's no question it's an oxidative therapy. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and this comes back and then also to the whole, um, you know, we were talking about cancer. Um, I wanted to, to dive briefly into the oxygen problem, the, the oxygen deficit problem that is actually causing a lot of like functional hypoxia and cells to become hypoxic um, and, you know, mitochondrial injury, which is then perhaps leading to the cancers and then certainly, you know, it becomes a vicious cycle. Can you elucidate that mechanism a little bit for people? Well, I know it, I know it best in the realm of cancer, so I'm going to yep. talk in the realm of cancer. I'm not an intensive care specialist, uh, though uh, we, you might mention, yep. uh, you know, we talked earlier about Barry Fowler. Barry Fowler understands vitamin C as it relates to sepsis. Yes. And why it's so good for sepsis. But I'm, I, that's not my field, but medicine. what I have yep. learned about vitamin C in terms of cancer, uh, cancer has been described as the non-healing wound. And there are many ways that certain areas of the body will become oxygen deficient. Yeah. Uh, and let's just call that hypoxia. So in the, in the presence of hypoxia, and that could be an area of toxicity, it could be poor blood supply, it could be any number of reasons because uh, there's a lot of w reasons yep. why cells do become hypoxic. Once they do, there is a there is a signal the uh, the uh, oxygen uh, oh shoot hypoxia induction factor. The hypoxia induction factor yep. is crucial because when that is triggered, the cell, in an effort to survive the lack of oxygen will shift back into glycolysis, which is anaerobic functioning. And, you know, in the evolution of, the, of, of life on the planet, before there was oxygen, there were, there were cells that were uh, yep. anoxic uh, cells. They, they functioned using something called glycolysis. 
And, and our cells have that ability. So when the cells are in danger or when they're cut off from their oxygen supply, they will shift to this, this uh, glyco- glycolysis, which is like fermentation. And when that happens, one molecule of, of, of sugar only brings out two ATPs, whereas a, if, you, if your mitochondria, which are the oxygen-burning part of the cells, if they're active and functional, one molecule of sugar will generate 36 to 38 yeah. ATP. So we have a drastic reduction in the, uh, in the pr- production of energy. And so then what the cancer cells do is they induce more of the glucose transporters on their cell membrane, and they start sucking in sugar. And that's why your advanced cancer patients become sh- very sh- – they, they want, all they want is sweet stuff to eat because they're so energy deficient. They're tired. That's oftentimes one of the early signs of, uh, of cancer is just profound fatigue. And then they start becoming cachexic as the body basically cannibalizes itself in an effort to continue providing sugar to feed the cancer cells. So, so basically, the lack of oxygen is the initial, initial starting point of cancer cells. And then cancer cells are just basically trying to survive on a, on a, on a lack of oxygen. And, and then it becomes established, and once it becomes established, then it's hard to uh, to reverse it. If, are you aware of the work of Professor Margaret Visses from New Zealand? She's from Otago. Um, yes. You are, you are. I, yes. Her, yes, I don't know her personally, but I know about her work, yes. yes. Well, I have Dr. Anitra Carr, one of her associate professors, who's also uh, studying this, and she, they're talking about the HIF factor in the tumor growth and that um, it's, you know, if we can if we can cut that off at the past, we can stop the tumor developing. Vitamin C growth. suppresses HIF. Yes. Vitamin C suppresses HIF. Yep. And uh, in one of my lectures, I won't, we won't want to go into this into too, de- too much detail, but, you know, a lot of people have asked, why, why do humans, why did humans survive as a result of losing their ability to make vitamin C? And one of the theories is that uh, if, 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 if you and I are trying, if we're, if we're prehistoric and we're trying to survive, if we eat a more high vitamin C diet, we have a much greater likelihood of surviving. Mm-hmm. And our ancestors lived in, in, in a more verdant, verdant uh, field of, you know, good, good, <laughs> good foods. And, and yeah. the ones that ate badly didn't survive. And I think that is coming into play right now. Yeah. We, are, uh, the, we are a culture that eats very poorly and our stress level is high, our toxicity level is high. And so now we are beginning to see the suffering and the chronic illness that uh, there's been in the last 25 years, there's been a twofold increase in chronic illness on the planet. And so uh, we we have a crisis going on right now. And really the COVID epidemic pandemic is really just a manifestation of that ongoing crisis. And And vitamin C could be a factor in helping us to survive that crisis in many ways, but it's just not being recognized by conventional medicine. No profit. 
Yes, exactly. And this is where the whole food industry, and we could get into Dr. Perlmutter's work and um, Dr. Hyman's work and um, looking at, you know, the, the, the state of our food production and glyphosate, and, but that's a, a, a big conversation for another day. But this is what means that we need to be having better nutrition and better um, and a better understanding of how all this stuff works so that we don't end up in this chronic. So we're living longer because medical interventions the western medical are doing amazing jobs at keeping us alive but in what type of condition are they keeping our people alive and can we and we're getting diabetes already in childhood you know type 2 diabetes not type 1 you know type and and these sort of degenerative diseases that that are that are manifesting way way earlier than that than they used to um dr ron i wanted to to flip over now and just talk about so before we leave the cancer discussion, though, if, if somebody is sitting in New Zealand or in Australia or somewhere around and they want to check out what the, uh, the Redden protocol is for intravenous vitamin C, how can they find a doctor or how can they find someone in the ear community? Is this really widespread or are they going to have a hard time getting access to this sort of a protocol? Because it's not just to have an intravenous vitamin C one once a week and Bob's your uncle, you, you're going to not have cancer anymore. It's a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, p- people ask me that all the time. I, in the United States here, uh, you know, the, the functional medicine doctors, the integrative medicine doctors, the naturopathic doctors uh, are pretty much embracing IV vitamin C as a, a go-to therapy that can really help just about anyone who is... Uh, who has struggled with uh, chronic illness. And so, so that's one way I, uh, a lot of people say, well, how can I find such a doctor? Usually if you go to the local health food store or, or people who are recognized in the area of uh, nutrition, like yourself, you you can find out that there are doctors out there are doing it. Some of them are, are keeping a low profile because they don't really want to get into trouble with their, their boards, their medical boards, or they just, they just don't want the hassle. You know, they're willing to work one-on-one with patients, yep. but the, the political battle has been a no-win situation. Yep. And so the, the better way to proceed is just to, and, and Dr. Reardon used to tell me this. He said, basically, you can waste a lot of energy fighting ignorance. Uh, you're better off to deal with people who are, uh, who are interested in working with you and, and, and uh, are willing to uh, uh, become a co-learner with you. He was very big on the concept of co-learning that that we work together as partners to figure out what it is that's going to help people get better. And my favorite term here recently is the idea of IVC synergism. You know, IVC by itself is a great therapy, but I don't think it's a standalone therapy. I think the more ways that we synergistically work on in elevating the patient's adaptive reserve, improving their sense of well-being, their 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 belief that they can get well, these sort of things. That 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 is where IV vitamin C is a is is something visible, something where people see that vitamin C going into their vein and feel it. Feel it's not that they feel a big supercharge, but they just feel like, hey, this is a step in the right direction. I can heal. I can get better. So it's a visible way of uh, uh, turning more to natural methods of inducing or helping the body to heal itself. 
and then combining it with some other fantastic and yeah i'm a part of the australasian integrated medical society here or association here in new zealand and australia and you know that there's a constant problem with functional doctors just being investigated constantly and there is this huge you know and i'm because i'm not a doctor I can say these things and I know that when I talk to some of the, the, the people, they get frustrated by the fact that they are go- if they pop their heads above the pulpit, they're going to get it chopped off. And, and those, these are the most at the forefront of knowledge doctors. These are the ones we want battling for us. And why is this happening? You know, is this because of pharmaceutical and the pharmacological approach? You know, what you said of what Dr. Dr. Reardon said, you can waste a lot of energy, and I must admit that I've wasted a lot of energy coming up against brick walls. Um, uh, I'm going to share in a separate episode my entire story with my father who recently passed because I came up against a brick wall in his care. He had an um, a abdominal uh, aortic aneurysm, so a massive rupture, and was ended up in hospital, miraculously survived the operation due to a wonderful surgery. And, and a great team of intensivists, um, but he developed sepsis. And this is when I, we ran into the problem because from the get-go I wanted intravenous vitamin C and I came up against a beast of a system that said, no, you can't give your father intravenous vitamin C, even though he was dying of sepsis. And I took on the <laughs> the big boys, if you like, and I fought for ten days against the system, the ethics committees, the legal, and this is a the subject for its own podcast. But um, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to you today about is the use of uh, intravenous vitamin C in ICUs, and in particular for sepsis. Obviously, I've got a vested interest in that one, but also for ARDS, pneumonia the coronavirus, this is, there has been work by done by Dr. Barry Fowler that you mentioned, who initially um, instigated and did a, a, a double blind controlled st- um, a trial, I believe, with intravenous vitamin C. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that trial and then Dr. Merrick's trial? That- well, and, and Dr. Uh, Fowler has just recently completed uh, an ARDS trial as well and oh, wow. showed that it is uh, it it also delivers it it also helps improve survival. It was interesting that the first uh, the first release of that study uh, was not as strong. But then uh, when it when the the experts got a hold of it, they found a major misinterpretation, mm. which basically showed that there was a lot more benefit in ARDS than what uh, than what was initially uh, observed. Is that the Citrus and, Ali uh, study? The Citrus Ali study, was it? Uh, I'm, 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 I, don't, I don't have the, the reference that, right yeah. handy here. Yeah. But uh, if people, if, if, they, if, they, if they look up Barry Fowler's name and his recent research, uh, there's, there, and, and I will send you, I've got a link where he is defending the study at a conference yes. and explain and so I'll send that to you, Lisa. And if any of your viewers are interested in it, you can send it out to them. And so, uh, but, but anyway, uh, so Barry Fowler has been a leader in that particular area. And he has the mechanisms uh, down. Uh, vitamin C certainly is uh, nature's acute care system. Uh, when, whenever uh, there is a, a threat to life, 
uh, vitamin C would be the rescue molecule. But uh, because it is still looked upon as a vitamin, which is you know utilized by the body in very micronutrient trace amounts, the idea of using high amounts still does not resonate with most doctors. I'd say 99% of the medical field still considers it to be just a simple vitamin that uh, don't worry about scurvy because we get enough vitamin C in our food. And so yep. this isn't Heaven happening to you. And, uh, uh, and plus vitamin C works holistically. It doesn't work like a drug. It, it works in many different ways. I mean, the, there are some specific things that vitamin C does in terms of the pr- production of collagen and uh, L-carnitine and things like that. But when, when, it, when it's being used as a rescue molecule, it goes to the very heart of mitochondrial repair because really without mitochondria, we're, we're dead. And, uh, and most of the chronic illnesses that we're dealing with in modern times are actually co- mitochondrial dysfunction diseases. Mm-hmm. And this is why vitamin C, I think, has general application across the board in the field of chronic, chronic illness care. Uh, the, the oral use of vitamin C is, is very interesting. I think it can have a role to play even with uh, cancer and other uh, chronic illnesses. But there you have to dose it frequently throughout the day or you have to use liposomal forms in order to get uh, the high enough blood level to really be of uh, use to people. But, but uh, keep in mind that Linus Pauling in his original research he gave uh, 10 grams a day over slow, continuous infusion for 10 days. Wow. After that, he converted to 2.5 grams four times a day orally, asking people to slowly increase their dose. And it was on that basis that he was able to help stage three and stage four patients live four to nine times longer. Uh, and some of the patients kept living even beyond that. Uh, so, uh, it, wow. so uh, sometimes what I tell people is we can use high dose vitamin C. It's kind of like ICU, intensive care. But the chronic care use of uh, oral vitamin C is also very pertinent here. And I, I don't want people to think that if you have if you don't have access to intravenous vitamin C, you're you're out of luck. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of uh, uh, learning to to dose yourself more frequently if you've got a cr- chronic illness. And then you, if you can find a practitioner that can help measure your levels and make sure you're reaching these critical uh, blood levels, that's probably going to be a big help to you as well. So let's just briefly touch on the, the liposomal versus uh, the normal um, vitamin C. Um, now, liposomal means it's sort of packed in a, in a, in a, a phospholipid, uh, which often is, has omega-6s, and this can be a problem if we have high levels of omega-6s. I mean, we're already out of the ratio omega-6 to omega-3 anyway. Um, so do you think that's a problem uh, if you're taking high doses of liposomal? Liposomal delivery is much better, isn't it, as far as delivering the vitamin C? To yeah. the it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big question in my mind as well. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm very much into the whole discussion now that uh, – the, the omega-6, the, uh, the oxidized uh, uh, seed oils, yes. are, they have completely uh, replaced saturated fats in grocery store items. And unfortunately, they are causing mitochondrial dysfunction. 
Exactly. So uh, I, I haven't really, you know, I've, I've been, been made aware of this and I haven't really discerned out because there is advantages to liposomal vitamin C. It does get into the lymphatics faster. It does not cause stomach upset. But I have also found that using sodium ascorbate, you can, uh, you can dose it in, uh, in higher amounts with, without causing the stomach upset. Yeah, yeah. Even the ascorbic acid, if people are sick, they can take uh, a lot more than what they would if they weren't, if they weren't sick. Uh, Dr. Robert Cathcart was a U.S. physician who worked at a call. Uh, I think it was University of Southern California, and he uh, would have some of the college students would come in with mono, and he could give them uh, six to ten grams of ascorbic acid every hour for wow. several days. That would be like over a hundred to one hundred and fifty grams of vitamin C orally without diarrhea and their fever would go away. Their pain would go away. They would feel much better because he didn't have access to doing IV vitamin C with them. But when they're sick, when you're sick, a lot more vitamin C. So there's, there's another dimension to vitamin C that we shouldn't forget about. And, and it's, it's, it is a very versatile molecule, but these issues that you're talking about in terms of omega-6 and liposomal, it certainly is something that needs to be reconciled because I've heard, I've heard this now from a number of people. Yes, that is one of the questions. So going back to the sepsis or intensive care medicine and Dr. Dr. Barry Fowler. So, so I know Dr. Fowler and Dr. Paul Merrick, who also did a study which was also heavily criticized, unfortunately, even though I don't know why, just because it wasn't a double-blinded controlled well, you know how difficult those sort of studies are to, to make. So let's, you know. May I just say, you know, evidence-based medicine is not evidence-based. Uh, people forget that. The, the, a lot of doctors, if it's not a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, they will not accept it as science. Yeah. But keep in mind that evidence-based medicine was developed by the pharmaceutical companies to protect their products yes. and to, to keep them from getting sued as readily as they otherwise would be. And it's not really the ultimate answer, especially when you look at the whole biology of the person. Uh, evidence base is just where you're taking one substance and comparing it in two in a in a in a in a control group and a treated group, and and basically you're you're doing it in such a way that when it goes to court, you can defend your substance. That's what evidence based medicine is. It's yep. not. It's really not true science. It's it's legal science is what it is. And so I get a little upset, and, I, and the way I always tell people, if, if they're going to do a double-blind uh, placebo-controlled trial on parachutes, I do not want to be in the control group. <clears throat> I mean to that, and that's exactly, and there are also problems with it. Uh, going back to the hyperbaric, which I ended up having a hyperbaric clinic here and, uh, after my mum's story, you can't do a controlled, uh, double-blind and controlled uh, with hyperbaric properly because people know if they're getting a treatment or not. And they so their their answer was to do it at one point three atmospheres instead of the one point five. Well, that is still a treatment. I'm sorry, that's still a treatment. Yeah, um, yeah. And so you you it's not clear cut. And then the if you bring into the whole uh, discussion, then the costs of of running such a clinical trial, uh, that means only pharmaceutical companies can run these things because none of it, no one else has got the money to do this, and so it becomes a self perpetuating pharmacological model that gets through and the rest of us don't 
with 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 alternative or not alternative i don't like that word um but with with things like oxidative medicines people can't make billions out of it and therefore it's never going to be listened to you know and this is part of the the the, the problem you know, we have with this. So going back to Dr. Merrick's study, because I, I thought it was uh, a very exciting and one of the ones that I quoted when I was fighting for my dad's life. And um, this had uh, 96 patients, 47 in the, the control group and 47 in the other group. Um, and he combined intravenous vitamin C, by the way, not in very high dosages. No, no, they kept pretty low. Yeah, that's what was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Sure, and and I know a lot of the other clinical studies is the reason they're keeping the dosages low because the mainstream doctors won't accept going to the levels that we'd actually like to go to. It's going to cause kidney stones. They're afraid it's going to cause kidney stones, or it's going to cause renal failure, or or some awful thing. And I can tell you in my 31 years at the Reardon Clinic, where I've probably overseen over 200,000 IV vitamin Cs, I can think of maybe two or three people that had a kidney stone, but they already had a history of kidney stones. So vitamin C does not cause kidney stones, but if you've got one ready to pop out, it's not going to prevent it either. So that's, uh, but but generally speaking, the notion that the oxalate itself is going to cause the stone, that's just not true. No. It, is, it is metabolized to oxalate, but you have to have an excess of calcium in your kidneys for that oxalate to combine with in order to form the stone. So vitamin C itself, the, there's been several studies to show that it does not cause kidney stones, yep. but that's part of the that's mentality. The mentality, and that was one of the, the arguments they had. They said that could damage his kidneys. When I said last time I looked, being dead damages your kidneys too. You know, and I saw in the, in the first intravenous that I got into my dad, because we did eventually get it 10 days too late because of the legal battles and so on, his kidney function went from 27% up to 33% in one infusion. So, I mean, and this is for something that was meant to damage his, his kidneys, you know, apart from the fact that his C-reactive protein numbers dropped by half, despite this incredibly advanced infection and his white blood cell count dropped as well um and so i've i mean i've seen that firsthand in someone who was at death's doorstep we're talking any any moment can go what the hell would have happened if i had had that from day one from his operation you know i and and i I i think the reason that he lived so long was that i had my dad on intravenous vitamin c prior to going into this not as regularly as i should have but I had him also on glutathione. I had him on good uh, nutrition. I had him on, you know, everything known to man going in. And so therefore he did survive the operation. He did get to, because every day the doctors were coming in and going, oh my God, he's still alive. And I, I can't believe he's actually still here with us at 81 years old, having had this massive operation. And I, and I was like, yeah, that's my dad and he's a fighter and uh, we're going to keep fighting. Um, and, you know, that's a, a whole nother story. But each one of the, so Dr. Merrick's study, I think, uh, uh, forgive me if I got the statistics wrong, but at the end of the day, the outcome was a drop in the mortality rate from 40% down to 8% um, from memory. Now, that is huge. And those are people's lives and families who don't, haven't lost their loved one. Every single one of those, and this was a small study, 
you know, and now they're doing the Victor study, uh, which is hopefully going to look at more, although I'm not holding my breath. I'm not sure how that one's going to come out. But there are lots of lots of studies now to show that in sepsis, in pneumonia, um, this is saving lives. We had a landmark case that I used as a precedent for my argument of a guy called Alan Smith in New Zealand who 10 years ago had swine flu. Uh, for what? I, I, met, I met Alan. I oh, met really? Alan. Yeah, he was in Paris uh, a couple years ago. We were with Dr. Thomas Levy doing some presentations, so I got to meet Alan. Oh, and it's God. quite a guy. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that whole story is chilling because uh, it, it really seemed like they were, I mean, I, you hate to say it, but it seemed like they wanted him to die. Yeah. Yeah, to and, prove, and to prove the vitamin C didn't work. Yeah. Exactly, because they, they started it and then they stopped it and they started and I had the same problems with my dad. And um, Alan Smith's case was the only reason I got a look in. And this is one of the reasons why I want to fight for this, because even if I don't succeed right now, everybody who lends their voice to this argument is going to make a little chip in their armor to get them to sit up and wake up and listen. And I'm hoping to talk to Alan. I want to meet him um, and, and, and discuss his case with him because it, I want him to understand, too, that it had an effect on my, my family's we, – we, we ultimately failed, but we, we had the chance and eventually I got it because of his case. And therefore, every single one of these cases, I don't want him to think that it, it was a waste of time making a fuss about this because this is, this is absolutely crucial work. Well, you know that Dr. Reardon wrote a three-book uh, series on medical mavericks because what he found is that all progress in medicine is met with resistance. It's not just vitamin C. Anything new, unless it's a big profit maker yeah. in the realm of something that people already know, then it can, it can weave through fairly quickly. But if it's something that's really original and unique uh, in, the, in the realm of medical thought, it's a huge, huge battle to to get something new in so i mean the medical profession will close ranks very quickly and that that's the concept of the maverick it's the being pushed outside of the herd yeah they're very good it's happened all throughout the history of medicine and it is like a herd mentality and i can see how it develops you know even the functional doctors, if they stick their head above the pulpit a little bit and do something, you know, like something simple like intravenous vitamin C or intravenous glutathione or something like that, oh, oh, chop their heads off. And so, of course, you breed this herd mentality as well. That I'll stick to the standard of care, even if the standard of care isn't working for anybody, because I don't want to. I don't want to lose my medical license that I've that I've spent years and years getting. And I can understand that. But this is what's killing this whole innovative and in, in, in the and in the latest research from being looked at and understood. You know, yeah. um, and, and it's it, it's costing lives, and it's not costing one or two. And in my family, you know, are definitely one of the victims of this problem. And I'm not saying 100% that my dad would have survived anyway, but I'm pretty damn sure he would have. Um, how many thousands and thousands of people and, you know, hundreds of thousands, if you look worldwide, are not benefiting from the latest in research? Uh, uh, Dr. Fowler, when he gives his presentations, he says, uh, this is before the pandemic, but every day there were two uh, plane loads of people dying from sepsis in uh, intensive care units because 
the standard approach was not working. So he, that's why he inaugurated his research into vitamin C. He said, there's got to be a better way. And so he's really great. If you can get a hold of Dr. Fowler, uh, he'd be a great person to interview given what's happened to your dad. Yeah. Yeah. I can give you connections on him. Okay. That would be absolutely wonderful. Um, Because I think, yeah, again, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm not a doctor. I don't have, but I do have a, a history of activism in this space. And I, because I'm not a doctor, they can't take my medical license off me. So I can say what I want because we still have free freedom of speech in this country. And, um, you know, if I can use that platform to get heard and to even to make a single person aware that there is this option to look at, it's really, really important to me. But I'm really impressed. I really do hope you get Dr. Fowler on your show because one of the things he's doing is he is very calm and he keeps repeating the science, the science, the science, because that's the only way we're going to win. We cannot win politically. We cannot win economically. The only way we can win is if we completely show that the science does uh, does play out accurately and, and people do live better, longer. Uh, and they get better faster. So those types of things. But anyway, Barry's uh, an excellent advocate of vitamin C in in, in the conventional realm. Great. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and find him, um, and, and definitely do that. Um, Dr. Ron, uh, we've we've covered a whole lot of stuff today. We've gone all over the place, and I would love to just go on and on. Um, I did want to ask just a couple. Um, I wanted to talk just briefly about what redox medicine or what what redox is, um, because I want people to understand. Because people go, well, uh, vitamin C is an antioxidant, but when it's given intravenously, it's also a prooxidant. Ozone therapy is also an oxidative. Can you, in one of your lectures, you beautifully described what the difference is between oxidative stress that is damaging and oxidative stress that is good, um, and just trying to help people who you know. Um, get their head around what redox is. So redox reduction is where basically uh, you donate an, uh, donate an electron and oxidation is where you steal electrons. So it's really just the flow back and forth of, of electrons. And life is electron flow. And uh, in, in some of my lectures, I talk about how when, when cells are healthy, when we're feeling healthy, you, you have this dynamic balance going on. But when there's injury, you, uh, you basically, the scale tips mm-hmm. and there's some kind of, uh, there's some, some kind of uh, disruption or dysfunctioning that's occurring. The oxidation that occurs is actually a signal. Oxidation can be a signal to the inflammatory system to start the repair process. Mm-hmm. So, so oxidation is not necessarily bad. It's interesting when I do an ozone shot in someone's knee, you know, prolozone, uh, I'm basically saying I'm causing more inflammation in your knee because I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm putting this ozone in. It's going to disinfect the knee, but it's also going to signal a reboot of the healing process. And this oxygen is going to bring in lymphocytes. It's going to bring in fibroblasts. It's going to bring in additional circulation. And the result is, is that you're going to get a better healing of the knee rather than having it be stuck in this chronic inflammatory state. Mm-hmm. So there we're using oxidation in a way to, uh, to heal. 
Uh, obviously, oxidation that's out of balance, it can cause uh, chronic infections, abscesses, uh, sepsis, all these various things. But that's where the, the person did not have the reserve of antioxidant nutrients you know, or glutathione support in order to uh, pull them out of the nosedive. Yep. And uh, the difference between like vitamin C is that you can continue to put vitamin C in uh, intravenously and it will continue to give electrons. Your glutathione, when, when glutathione donates an electron, it becomes oxidized and it's no longer functional. It has to be rejuvenated. It has to be uh, re-reduced. But yep. that takes the methylation cycle, that takes minerals, it takes a lot of biochemistry to rejuvenate uh, glutathione. So that's why an infusion of glutathione, you can do that, but IV vitamin C works a lot better in that particular, in that particular instance. Oh, okay. That was one thing that was missing in my the connect the dots there. Um, because I was like, you were talking about vitamin C in when you have uh, tyrosine, for example, going to dopamine, which then turns into norepinephrine, I think, and right. that adrenaline, and then adrenochrome. And we were talking, you were talking about schizophrenia and, and how adrenochrome, the end result of that process, can cause hallucinatory effects. And you used vitamin, and then you said, but vitamin C can get a background. And I was missing the dots there. But that, that's where that comes in. Yeah, uh, Cathcart basically said it. It you, with vitamin C, you can just keep pouring it in as much as you need if you have an IV access point or if you're giving it in adequate doses uh, orally. Now you can also rejuvenate vit uh, vitamin C. The the red blood cells have a redox system in their cell membrane, but it's very slow. It's very very slow, and that's why you can't just go by that alone. You need to get vitamin C in your diet. And then when you have an emergency, you need large amounts of vitamin C. And that's where we fall short. And that's where uh, intravenous vitamin C or uh, forms of vitamin C that can be taken in large amounts could, can actually serve as kind of like a fire engine coming to put out the fire of oxidation. Because the half-life of vitamin C is very short, isn't it? Two to three hours, I believe. Um, right. So I I did have that question in my head then. If it's such a short half life, what benefit is it actually having? If we're you know if it's if it's going out of the body in, in three hours, how is it still having an effect even though it's gone? It's a kind of flush. You kind of flush the system and you you rejuvenate the reserves. Uh, but you're right, and that's why I tell people. If you've got cancer and you come to the Reardon Clinic for three days and we give you the Reardon protocol at progressive doses and get your dosing, you still, when you get home, you need to find someone who can give you IV vitamin C twice a week. And even between those IV vitamin Cs, you need to think like Linus Pauling thought, you need to be taking your oral doses of vitamin C three to four times throughout the day in order to maintain adequate amounts. Is there a place that if you have a, a local doctor, a GP, a functional doctor or someone, um, that you can get the, the Reardon protocol if they're unaware of it? So like for, for cancer specifically sure. every day? Um, you uh, go to reardonclinic.org, our website, mm -hmm. and under learn, we have our research uh, section. Yep. And 
located in the research section. The full protocol is there, free to anyone to download and wow. to utilize. Wonderful. Okay, I'm going to go and check that out because I wasn't sure, you know, like you don't always have a doctor in your local town who has perhaps heard of the Red, Red and Protocol. So this would be a, a great thing to take to them and say, hey, I want to do this if I've got kids. Right, and we do IV vitamin C symposiums where we uh, talk about its utilization. And then we also have an IVC academy where we train doctors to use IV vitamin C in their practices. Fantastic. That's really, really exciting. Um, okay, so that's sort of the, the redox. Is it, it's a bit like hermesis, isn't it? Like, you know, when... When I do an exercise training session, I go to the gym, I lift some heavy weights, I'm causing actually a breakdown of muscle, I'm actually damaging it. But that is a, a, is a signal, if you like, to the body, oh, something's wrong here, I have to start this cascade of events, which will in end effect make my muscles bigger, stronger, more able to cope, more endurance, etc. It's the same sort of effect, isn't it, when we're doing... Yeah. Uh, I, I, I heard an interesting thing, and since you're an endurance runner, you'll you'll relate to this, that there for a while, uh, endurance runners or people who were trying to train were taking too many antioxidants. Yes, yeah. The pro-oxidant effect yeah. uh, in order to get the hormesis to kind of get your body to gear up and become stronger. And so, so there is a, an inappropriate way to use antioxidants. And, and, and that's what uh, people don't understand that. They assume that antioxidants is just all good. Yeah. But you yep. can use them inappropriately. And, and that, as an athlete, I've been worried about that because, of course, I've been taking a lot of vitamin C. And I'm like, well, when do I take it? If I'm training at lunchtime today, when would be a good time? Is it like a three-hour or six-hour window prior to training and after training that I shouldn't have vitamin C and vitamin E? and other antioxidants or well, remember your training is kind of like a self-induced injury. Yeah. <laughs> and so you want to, you, and, and so you want to go ahead and train, but not while you're taking the vitamin C, uh, let the injury occur. And then after you start to recover and later on that day, when you're eating your meal, that's when you might take your vitamin C because then you need the vitamin C to do the repair work. Okay, but so you not, don't want to be repairing it while you're stressing it. You not, see that? Yeah, so, I, yeah. Yeah, hormesis, yeah, hormesis is tricky, but you, you, that's where people, they, they don't understand how redox actually works. It's, it's not that all oxidation is bad and all antioxidants is good. It's, it's these cycles that occur within the body that are part of life, and you just need to learn how to uh, – nuance your 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 supplementation so that you yeah. get the best results so probably four to five hours after training would be a good time yeah i don't think anyone's worked out the exact details yeah. and so uh but that, and that's really interesting isn't it that, that, that you in our logical linear thinking brains one plus one equals two we're good to go you know i take my vitamin c i go and exercise i've had a healthy day um but it, it is, and it's all about um, the timings. Chronobiology is a lot, you know, I, I, I'm trained in epigenetics and, and have an epigenetics program, and it, a lot of things are related to chronobiology, like the right time of the day, and it's the same with these sorts of, of, of things, that you, you're having a little bit of stress at the right time. So oxidative stress causes a, a cellular, if you like, signaling cascade. And we want that to a certain degree. We just don't want it to become like chronic inflammation. This is where we start to get the inflammaging um, 
you know, right. those sorts of things coming in. So it, it, we we are very complicated beings. <laughs> but yep. um, Dr. Dr. Ron, you've been so generous with your time today. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I would love to, but better not. Um, <clears throat> I just want to mention you, um, Dr. Thomas Levy has a book called Curing the Incurable, which um, is a, an absolutely fascinating read. And he's a colleague of yours. Um, I'm loving that book. Um, so people might want to go and get that. Dr. Ron, where can they find and reach out to you if people want to, or to your institute? Um, where can they find you? So we're at Reardon Clinic, and Reardon is spelled R-I-O-R-D-A-N, Dr. Hugh Reardon. Um, and so Reardon Clinic, we, named, we renamed it. It was the Center for the Improvement of Human Functioning, but after he passed in 2005, we renamed it in his honor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got a wonderful website. We've got, if you go to YouTube and go to the Reardon Clinic channel, yep. tremendous amount of uh, videos and research. There are our last 2018 symposium. Most of it is there in videos and, and it's all very good. A lot of our other symposiums are present in the Reardon Clinic uh, learning section. And so we invite you to do that. I take calls every Monday night from uh, 4.30 to 5 uh, Central Standard Time. Uh, people are willing, uh, I just am answering basic questions, but if they would like to chat briefly that way, it's a free call. I'm happy to answer their questions. That's amazing, Dr. Ron. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for your honesty, your the passion that you bring to your work. It's it's having an effect right down on the other end of the world. So um, I really appreciate what you've done for, for this. And yeah. Awesome to talk to you today. Dr. And Lisa, thank you for being relentless. <laughs> That's a perfect way to go out. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.